Good morning, happy Sabbath to you that are watching on Sabbath, to those of you that are watching later on in the day or even the week. We just want to wish you a happy whatever time and whatever place you may be joining. Our prayer is that God continues to move in your life and to be experienced in new and exciting ways. We're going to talk about judgment again. It seems like this is a topic that we tend to cover quite a bit here. We're going to do so, though, under the framework of uh, the Three Angels message per our lesson study for this week. Before we do that, we're going to do what we always do, which is, you know, pray and invite God to be with us in our study of Scripture. So let me invite you to pray with us. Creator, and the one who is slain and now is worthy, God of wonder, God of majesty, King of kings and Lord of lords, lords, we pray that you open our minds and our hearts so that, Lord, we may live anew, we may live again, we may experience the peace and the comfort that is walking with you, we pray in your name. Amen. Joey, how are you this week? How has your week been as we uh, deal with a new lesson study? I've appreciated all the sun we've been getting here. A lot of sun. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I love the rain. Don't get me wrong. I loved the rain this year. I wish we could get this much rain in Southern California every single year. But um, the sun is nice. It's nice uh, to be out in the sun, to be outside and playing sports with family. And, mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, been, it's been a particularly bright week. It's a particularly warm Sabbath. It finally does start to feel like the summer is here, and I think that's just a segue of things to come. Uh, summer usually is linked with not only our graduation season here in our community, but camp meeting where we also are going to deal with some interesting topics. So it's exciting to feel the weather start to get warmer and warmer. Yeah, I, I'm very excited for our camp meeting series. We've even extended it. Because we love camp meeting so much, we've <laughs> extended camp meeting, and uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. I'm so excited to see what you're going to be doing on Friday nights, uh, what Randy will be preaching on on Sabbath mornings. It's going to be a really fun time. And so, friends, if you're in the area, I encourage you to come in person, be a part of this community. If you're not in the area, of course, a lot of it will be also broadcast online. So come and join us. That is, I think, the first in many a long list of announcements that you will be getting from now until uh, the middle of the summer on camp meeting. But before we get there, we're going to jump in to this, to this passage in Revelation. Again, we talk about this idea of judgment being good news. Mm. And I guess judgment is good news if you know the outcome of the judgment already. Um, and so I, I like the title because it starts to push us, I think, in the direction of some certainty, which is not usually what we associate with uh, this idea of judgment. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes when we think of a, a upcoming judgment, there's a lot of anxiety that mm -hmm. circles around the uncertainty. I mean, you talked about graduation season coming up, but before graduation, there's always finals, mm. right? Yeah. And there's that, that final final step you have to get, the final judgment that you experience before you're allowed mm. to march or um, go through graduation. It's, it is a harrowing time because you don't always know what to expect. And yet, um, I love how the lesson study ties the the gospel mm -hmm. with judgment and the good news of the gospel means that judgment is also good news. Right. It's simply the continuation or, or the culmination, if you would have it, of this idea that God is intending to do something. God is intending to rescue us. And in order for there to be this rescue, uh, there needs to be a moment when everything is revealed. And I think that's that's a thing that we often 
fail to recognize when it comes to Revelation that judgment in Revelation is simply the ultimate reveal party. It is to show what narrative actually uh, gives life and then how is uh, life and peace and love and grace and mercy, all these things that are components of the gospel, how are those lived out and shared? And it's, it's through this, this idea of judgment. So we'll get into that in, in a second. Um, the lesson touched a lot on one of my favorite passages in the whole book. I think um, the ultimate apex of the book, and we've talked about this before, is found in the passages between uh, chapter 12 and 14. But the crowning moment in the book isn't in 12 or, or 14. It's Revelation 4 and 5. Mm. And it's a throne room scene mm. uh, that has to do with judgment. So I'm excited about getting into getting into that and chewing on, on these concepts for a bit. Yeah, and I love how you talk about judgment as, as a revelation, right? It's the opening of a door. It's the opening of, a, uh, of the scene to figure out what narrative, what meta narrative is actually true, and and to get a glimpse into everything that's happening behind the scenes, and that's what we get in Revelation mm -hmm. four and five: an opening of a door, and you get a peek into the mm -hmm. throne room, a peek that we humans living here on Earth don't necessarily always get. We mm -hmm. don't always know what God is doing behind the scenes, and that does provide some anxiety and stress because there are times when we question God: Why did this happen here mm -hmm. on Earth? We've talked about these moments before, and we. We don't always have a clear answer here um, on earth, but in Revelation 4 and 5, we at least get a glimpse of what God is doing mm. in the throne room behind the scenes, and I think that's that's powerful. Two chapters that I think, as you're saying, give us a glimpse into what of what God is doing, and it is uh, it is a, but a glimpse because what is happening in this particular section of Revelation is actually God's response. Uh, to the problem that is erupted in heaven. So it, it's really interesting that what is actually happening, the scene and this glimpse that we are getting, the scene of uh, weeping and just complete, complete agony is occurring in heaven. And it is a result hmm. of what is going to be described later on in the book as the uh, this war that occurs in heaven. And so again, if you read the book linearly, it's not going to make sense. But if you think about it conceptually, mm -hmm. this is God's response to the rebellion that uh, that sin has come, that sin has come to introduce into the into the narrative. And uh, just talking a little bit more just to center ourselves, friends, in what the book is trying to do is there is judgment and there is freedom and redemption, but there are also seven seals that need to be open. And so that's where we find ourselves as we get into chapter four and five. Yeah, I love that. That That's such a great point that Revelation isn't, isn't in chronological order, mm -hmm. right? It, it's, it's more thematic and structured differently to make a, diff a certain point, which means that although we don't hear about the challenge or the challenge of sin until later on in Revelation, already in Revelation 4 or 5, you get the solution to the challenge that's going to be introduced later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's perfectly stated. Um, so, John sees. And John sees... Uh, sees in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed in seven seals. Uh, so many uh, things have been written about what this scroll is. Uh, if you read some commentaries, it'll say that it's a libelous, uh, which people within the uh, Roman world would have understood. Uh, ancient oriental or uh, enthronement ceremonies uh, the king would receive the tablets of destiny, uh, and it was a representation that now the destiny of his people was in his hands. And so there might be some interplay with that. Uh, the scene that John begins to paint is pregnant with pictures from both the book of Ezekiel and uh, the scroll that you see in Zechariah that is also written on both sides. And I think that's particularly interesting because the story or whatever needs to be shared with this scroll that is going to be unlocked is so profuse. There's so much to tell that you need to have it spilling out of the margins as you will. And it, as I was reading just the, the way in which 
John describes the scroll, um, I came to think about uh, moments where you've had a really interesting class or maybe a presentation uh, that was just so earth-shattering and so moving for your paradigm that you couldn't stop writing and you started writing mm -hmm. in the margins and in, in the back of the book just because the content was, was so transformative that you didn't want to miss it or forget it. I think that's a really good analogy to what uh, what we have on the scroll, uh, picking up a little bit f uh, from the language in Zechariah. You have this this message that is so profuse, so abundant, that it needs to be written in every piece of blank paper that you can that you can come up with. Wow, I love that because it the way that John reacts to this scroll and the. And initially finding out that there's nobody to open mm -hmm. the scroll is not something you'd get from just any old piece of information, mm -hmm. right? And so it points to that there, what's what's written in the scroll, what it, the scroll represents is not just informational, it's transformational, mm, like you point. were talking yes, about. Yes, that yes. that it, it is, it's life-changing. Mm -hmm. I remember, I mean, when I think about classes, there have been several classes, like in seminary, that was that were life-changing. I remember taking development of Seventh-day Adventist theology from George Knight. That was a transform transformational mm -hmm. course for me. Like, gave me so much perspective knowing the history of of our church. Um, so I understand some of John's passion because at first, when I read through, I was like weeping. Like, he doesn't even know exactly what's written on the scroll yet. Why is he weeping mm -hmm. here? And that's the question I had. I don't know what your reaction was to John. It was it was similar, just this idea that, okay, now you have to open the scroll because at, at least, and we don't know what's in the scroll, but we know that the scroll needs to be opened in order for Act 2, mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you can think of Revelation as a play, in order for Act 2 to develop, the scroll needs to be opened. And N.T. Wright, who, who has written profusely on, uh, on this particular passage in Revelation, likens it uh, to uh, getting a letter, waiting uh, for a letter, a response from a uh, college application or a job application, and um, you open it, and it's very clearly that the address on it is specific, and you cannot move onto the second part of the process, whether that's employment or education, until you open the scroll. But mm. um, if you're a parent and you're you're child, your son, your daughter has ever gotten a letter like this, mm. you know that because it is addressed specifically to her or him, you need to wait. And so it's kind of this this moment where John is saying we need to move on with the story mm. because this thing that we have seen, this enthronement ceremony in heaven has is so magnificent that we want it to be culminated by inviting everyone to worship the Lamb. And yet in order for that to happen, the scroll needs to be open. Wow. And that the, that's why he's he's feeling this anxiety, this anticipation. Right. And it's the the waiting is overwhelming mm -hmm. to him. That's exactly what's happening, Joey. Wow. And um, it's really interesting, right, that he, there is there's this call that goes out in order for the scroll to be open and nobody on earth or in heaven is mm. found. And then one of the elders and you have uh, John is painting a picture about what he knows. And so the image that he started to construct in verses in chapters four and five is like the image of a. Uh, courtroom in Orient. By the way, this is how justice was meted out in the both the Roman and the Semitic world. You would have the king get together with all of his advisors, and then the king would um, give out uh, and extend these judgments. And this is when justice occurred. And so John is taking that picture that it was so well known, and in in. in superimposing that to this to this rich narrative that he's telling us. So this throne room scene is a judgment scene. It is a judgment scene. It most definitely is it. This is how this is how judgment uh was uh, occurred in the world uh that John lived in. The question I think again is who is being judged and why are they being judged? Mm -hmm. I think uh Andy Scholar would uh, would agree that this is indeed a judgment uh, a judgment a scene and so the question is what do we need to do? What exegetical principles do we need to apply in order to equate judgment with good news? Yeah. And, you know, m many of our listeners know that the throne not only represented 
um, royalty, but also judgment, mm -hmm. right? That's That was the law and order symbol. Mm -hmm. Like we, we look at a gavel and think a benching gavel and we think that that's like law and order. For them, it was a throne. What's so interesting about this passage is God is not the only one seated on a throne, right? right? Yeah, so that's there is correct. this aspect of participation of the elders in the judgment. Mm -hmm. It's not just God who's judging. It is, there is this, um, and I, 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 various scholars have talked about how, how even the location of these thrones, mm -hmm. it's like central. Mm -hmm. And even the four creatures, um, the way that it literally describes them are that they are in the middle and around the throne. And so it's almost like they're sitting on the throne as mm -hmm. well. So there's this, this whole like almost group participation mm -hmm. of judgment yeah. that's happening. Is that yeah. right? Is that what's going on? There's, there's definitely a spatial nature to the, to the picture that John paints. And what is uh, within Revelation, you're going to find this idea of the middle appearing time and time again. Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, who wrote uh, up, to, up to now, I think one of the most comprehensive commentaries on Revelation notes that it, the image of Jesus in the middle is not just a theological image, it's spatially. And mm. what, what Fiorenza is trying to convey is that the point of the book is that if the fulcrum of the book remains Jesus, the closer you are to that fulcrum, the more cl interpretive clarity you're going to find. If you see, then you have kind of this this spatial imagery with, as you said, four, uh, 24 elders, and there's been much, much ink spilled on what this is. What we do know is, um, at least in John's mind, it seems like that that number intends to be comprehensive of mm -hmm. the people of God, uh, whether that's uh, 12 apostles, as some people have have argued, and 12 tribes of Israel trying to merge together mm -hmm. the um, the whole experience of the Christian church. Um, and then you have these four creatures, which um, in, in mindset of the author of Revelation represent kind of the four corners of the world. So whatever is happening, um, the implications of this judgment are, go are global mm -hmm. and they are experienced throughout uh, all of Christian families. But there is, as, as you're no noting, some participation uh, that uh, that all these other creatures and entities are called to have, uh, so long as they recognize that Christ needs to remain spatial, spatially and theologically in the middle of the picture. So that's that's such an important point that the imagery used here, the metaphors and the symbology that's used here, um, is is meant to communicate the universal people mm -hmm. of God, Correct. both in time and in space. Mm -hmm. And that somehow that group, that people of God, which we are a part of as well, participate mm -hmm. in judgment. That's what it seems to be indicating. And I think that's why it is, it is collaboration then is always good news, particularly when it reflects on the judgment. Because ultimately what we, what we can do is we can um, serve as as jurors uh, analyzing evidence and then rendering a verdict, but uh, the process needs to be initiated uh, by someone other than us. And so I think this is why, uh, for John, it's, it's such a traumatic experience because he realizes that the purpose of the church, whatever you want to define that as, is a per, uh, is a mission that can only be accomplished once Jesus has done something, and so it appears that again, like it has happened throughout the book, the church is called to be not only collaborative but to react to what Christ is already doing. So it's like judgment is ready. All the people, the judges are seated. All the people, the participants are there, but the judgment can't begin until the seals are mm -hmm. open. So yeah. it's almost like. It's almost like if you were sitting at a delicious banquet feast, but you can't start until somebody comes and prays. Yeah. And so everybody's just waiting and smelling the food yeah, and in eager anticipation. Absolutely. And so think about then what it means to have that opened up and to have John uh, hear the words as, um, as one of the angels says, mm -hmm. there is one who is worthy. Um, he is the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. In these uh, line of the tribe of Judah is one of John's preferred times. It appears about 24 times throughout the book. It is something that John is deeply trying to connect. 
I think it has to do with John's desire to be historically accurate as it pertains to God's, uh, to God's message or to God's self-disclosure throughout the Bible. Um, and so th there's a very Old Testament language in, in those two descriptions for Jesus, lion and root. Mm -hmm. But then you have a very New Testament picture also emerging as John sees a lamb who was slain. And what should uh, not be missed as you're reading through how judgment occurs is that the verdict or the possibility to enact judgment is a result of the lamb who was slain. And so mm -hmm. it is, again, this, this counter-cultural, counter-intuitive way of having God's will and God's purpose for us occur. Judgment isn't about being punitive, then. It is about recognizing uh, the lamb who was slain. So God seems to be, again, uh, taking everything we know about the created order and just flipping it upon its head. Yeah, which would have been shocking not just to John, but also his original adherers mm. and to us as well. Right. This, this idea that, again, we've talked about this many times, that we a lot of times focus on the beasts of Revelation, mm. but the beasts are there in contrast to the real victor, which is the lamb that is slain. Mm. And I wonder that maybe sometimes our obsession with the beastly powers sometimes encourage us to act in beastly mm. ways because we think that's what power is. And yet John and Jesus show time and time again mm. that true power doesn't come through beastly methods, mm. but through a sacrificial land. And the language then affirms that, right? Uh, not only I would add to this idea of power, wisdom, true wisdom comes uh, through self-sacrificial mm. love. And so you have these horns and these eyes, and those two things are signifiers, at least uh, in Revelation, of both power and wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so it's uh, this lamb who has uh, seven horns and seven eyes, so this fully powerful, fully wise, full-knowing lamb who sits on the throne is, uh, is made wise and is made powerful because it was, it was slain. Um, and then kind of what you were talking about uh, pops up. You see four living creatures, 24 elders, mm -hmm. and those elders are carrying you and me. Mm -hmm. um, those are representatives of you and me. Um, there's this idea of uh, they have a pr golden bowls full of incense, mm -hmm. which we know is the prayers of the saints. John will even uh, describe and interpret that for us. Mm -hmm. And then they are going to have uh, a harp. Uh, and so this this is this new song that we're invited to sing. And what I find fascinating then, Joey, is that this is not something that occurs uh, in the eschaton. This is not future-oriented. At least in this moment, John isn't being future-oriented. John is saying this is what is happening right now. Right now there is a lamb who was slain sitting on the throne, and uh, that lamb is being worshipped through the prayers of the saints mm. and through the songs that we sing. And sometimes we're deaf tune and our prayers uh, seem to be woefully inadequate for the circumstances that we are, mm. that we're inhabiting and encountering. How often have you, dear friend at home, felt that your prayer isn't enough? Um, just because the pain and the brokenness is such that, I mean, what good is my prayer going to do? And, and yet John wants to make it clear that it is those prayers and that it is those songs, broken and out of tune as they may be, that actually God takes as the wow. ultimate expression of worship. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that, that on earth, as we're living right now, it can feel like our prayers are pretty ineffectual. Mm. There, are, there are times when we feel like they're not even being heard. Mm. And yet in this glimpse behind the scenes that John gives us, one that while we're living on earth, we don't get very much mm. of, we see that the, tr the prayers are treasured. They're in this golden bowl and they're offered to this lamb. Mm -hmm. 
And I love the imagery of the lamb you just described, this, this lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, which you don't really think of a lamb as a powerful creature mm-hmm. because it's a baby sheep, right? That's a lamb. And lambs don't have seven horns. And yet this is that symbol of power, the horn as a symbol. So this is a powerful, like you said, a powerful, wise lamb. And yet what made it powerful and wise was its sacrifice. Mm. And that is the lamb. It's not some 98 pound weakling. It is a strong, powerful lamb that sits on the throne Mm. and that is able to open the um, seals. That is the lamb who listens to our Mm. prayers. That's absolutely right. And that is why I think you can confidently approach that lamb. Mm. Um, A lot of, I think, misreadings of the text would seem to indicate that this is solely about judgment. And I I think the reason why I say misreadings is because often we don't understand that judgment is but another tool that God shows, that God chooses to use in order to show and reveal His grace. This, make no mistake about it, Revelation 5, as we are in a judgment throne room scene, is ultimately about God's grace. How do I know that? Because John then starts describing this lamb even in more specific terms. And the specificity has to do with two, I think, two missions uh, that God had entrusted uh, people to to do. And uh, sadly, uh, people fail. So notice that it says, the song, this broken song that is being sung, you are worthy to take the scroll to open uh, its seals because you were slain. And we're going to, I hope we circle back to that. Um, and with blood you purchased for God persons from every, every tribe, language, people, and nation. And then verse 10, you have kind of this uh, specificity. You have made them to be two things, kingdom of priests, and they will reign with God on earth. The idea, the original idea that God had for humanity was to reign in the same way that God reigns, right? Mm. Uh, God made humankind in his image, in his image he made him, male and female he, he made him, and he gave him a dominion over the earth and all that is in it. So that perfect reign, uh, human beings abdicated that. Uh, the, rebellion in hev- the rebellion that began, at least in John's mind, in heaven, and then was translated to the earth, uh, forced human beings to abdicate their right to reign. So God says, well, okay, maybe human beings abdicate their right. Maybe I can choose a people, a people that are going to serve in an intercessory role. And that ultimately is God's message to Abraham, right? The call of Abraham is for him to found and forge a people that will intercede for all nations. And yet... And you find this again in uh, this, uh, the covenant at Sinai. Israel fails miserably at their task. And so you have kind of this task, this mission that God had for humanity. And this mission that God had for Israel ultimately being fulfilled by Christ. And so again, it's this idea that when we are not able to fulfill the plans and the goals and the purposes for which God has called us, it's okay, Christ... Uh, the message will happen. The good news is that Christ, in the end, does it all. Wow. Yeah. So he, he covers, he not, over cover, not only covers our past, but he also covers our present. Mm-hmm. And he's standing with us to do what we are unable mm. to do. Yeah, and we, in him, our vocation is perfected. I think that's mm. the really important thing that, that we need to realize. It's not just that we are covered. Mm. Uh, but we are we as human beings like to believe that we have a call, that mm-hmm. there is a mission, there is a missional aspect, if you will, to our life, and the beauty is that that vocation, however faulty we may uh, be at fulfilling it, uh, that's okay because Christ is the one ultimately that gives purpose to our vocation, whatever that vocation might be. Yeah, and He does that by making us worthy of the vocation mm-hmm. that we are called to. He does that by transforming us inside and out and also by walking alongside mm-hmm. us, working alongside us to lend power and ability to, to the work that yeah. we do. And that's the grace part, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so God somehow, some way uh, has, decided, has judged you to be worthy. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, because you are judged to be worthy, as you have kind of the devastating effects that John is going to describe uh, as the seven seals are opened, and you begin to go through this period of tribulation that needs to happen in order uh, for the end to come, uh, you, the response of those who are called to be uh, to receive and to be affirmed in their vocation by the Lamb is worship, uh, which is a really interesting response to crisis. The response to tribulation so often is uh, doubt, uh, pain, tears, anxiety, grief. Uh, but here it seems like John is saying there is another possible response to tribulation, and that is worship. Yeah. We mentioned before how, as a staff, we've been reading a book on peacemaking. And it is interesting that that is actually what the author recommends mm. as well when you face conflict, that the first thing we need to train our minds to do is to rejoice in the Lord, mm. right? That we turn our minds not towards what's happening immediately in front of us, but upwards to God mm. and remember the the blessings, the, the, the amazing ways that God has cared for us. And that's not the easiest thing to do. That's not the no, easiest thing to do it's in tribulation. So hard, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's just, and I, I think we're not saying, and I, at least I don't hear you saying that, um, to have grief or um, emotions of angst or uh, emotions of sadness or guilt or whatever it comes when you're facing tribulation. I don't think what we're saying is that those are inadequate approaches to it. Mm. The question is how do we how do we take that grief or that angst or that anxiety or that uh, whatever emotion you wanna you wanna interject there? How do we take those things as moments for adoration? Um, mm. What does grief tuned to adoration look like? And I don't think it looks that different in, different in the sense that there's sadness and there's weeping and there's tears. I think, however, that there is a sacredness to those tears because now those tears are incense offerings that you are actually presenting before God. And so a weeping and angst and suffering, those also are, are valid and valuable ways uh, for worship and, and uh, ways in which we can uh, fill uh, the heavenly throne room with adoration. Yeah. You know, as pastors, we have the privilege of stepping into those sacred moments um, for our people, moments of loss and mourning. Um, they invite us into those spaces to hurt and hurt mm -hmm. with them. And what I've what I've found so tremendously surprising, inspiring, is that grief is never just one thing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, when I was younger and I was just beginning ministry, I thought, oh, when somebody experiences a loss, they're just crying and sad all the time. But what I've discovered is that's not the case. Like, grief. The sadness comes in waves, but the grief remains. Mm -hmm. It's not like um, just because I'm ha having experiencing a happy or a joyful moment right now, the grief is gone. Mm -hmm. The grief is still there, but it comes in it, the sadness, the, the emotions of sadness seems to come in waves. Mm -hmm. And so even in the midst of grief, it is, and I have seen this, um, and that's the part I find inspiring, is I've seen people turning their eyes to God and and being able to rejoice, even in that moment of grief, being able to see that there is hope. Um, it's, it's sort of like what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians when he says that we grieve for those we have lost, mm. but we don't grieve as those who have no hope, mm -hmm. right? There's a different kind of grief mm -hmm. here because the grief we know is eventually going to come mm. to an end. Not, not because grief, we should try to put an end to grief, but because the thing that we are grieving will eventually return mm -hmm. to us. The person we are grieving will eventually come back to us. And because of that, we know that there is an end point to that grief. And that puts a whole nother character on it. And um, that doesn't mean we're not sad. doesn't mean that we're not weeping and crying. But it does lend to being able to rejoice 
even in the moment mm. of our grief. And that's the that's I think what's beautiful what's beautiful about it that grief is not it's a valid emotion. Yeah. And it's not an emotion that we should run from. Um it's an emotion that uh weeping is an act of worship. Uh because you weep um as you recognize the brutality of of the world we live in. Mm. If in I, I often say this uh, at graveside uh, funerals. If this was normal, if human beings were created uh, to experience pain, then perhaps and just perhaps it, the shock and the pain and the grief would be mitigated by the fact that you believe, hey, we were made for this. But to weep in front of a casket is uh, the ultimate act of adoration because it is an act in which we say, this isn't right. Mm. There's something here that doesn't fit. And I'm not sure we have language for that. Matter of fact, I know we don't have language for it. But this is what it means then to to take John at its word when he says that uh, the worship goes on forever and ever. It's not just worshiping God in moments uh, when things are going well or when you're in church and when you're singing uh, and when you have kind of liturgical propriety. It's uh, recognizing that grace, uh, that God's grace allows him to hold space for us even in the midst of sorrow and that those experiences, sorrowful as they may be, uh, sad as they are, that sadness itself is an act of worship, and it's uh, it's it's an act to be to be given and offered to God, uh, without mm-hmm. explanation ne- explanations needed, and probably more importantly, without feeling guilt. Uh, I find too often we uh, we try mm-hmm. to push and prod people through the grief process, mm-hmm. um, and we say, okay, well we need to get you feeling happier uh, because then, you know, then we'll move through it. Don't move through it, please. Grief is an act of worship. And so as an act of worship, it, I know this is going to sound weird, but it needs to be savored just like any other act of worship is savored. Yeah. And the reality is we don't ever, ever really get past the grief of the loss of someone we love mm-hmm. deeply. Absolutely right? not. It's not moving on from the grief. It's moving forward, carrying that Mm -hmm. grief. And maybe over time, it's possible that it gets easier to carry, but that doesn't mean the grief is never there because the loss of that person is always with us. So, um, yeah, that's a great point. Because of our discomfort with grief, at times we have rushed people to try to get them through grief, but that's, that's that's not right. And that's not what... That's not what God did. Mm. And that's, that's, I love how you said that our grief actually is an act of worship. You know, our senior pastor, he said, he's, I've heard him say many times how he, he thinks Jesus had a problem with death mm-hmm. because um, he only attended, what, three funerals. Mm. Um, and he always showed up late. He said inappropriate things. Mm-hmm. And then when he was done, the funeral was over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that's absolutely right. God has a problem with death. And so we should have a problem with death. We should be angry and frustrated mm-hmm. and sad at death because death is not right. It's mm-hmm. not the way it should be. Yeah, yeah that's powerfully said. Um, and that 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 statement that, that you're referring to that Randy has shared, we've heard, I think, uh, often at memorial services as part of the homily. Mm. And um, it, it kind of is birthed out of that famous passage in, in John 11, mm. where the, the question that people ask is, well, why is Jesus weeping? Who is Jesus weeping for? What What is causing Jesus to weep? And there's many possible explanations that have been offered. One of them is, well, Jesus is empathizing with uh with Lazarus' sisters. That's why he's weeping. I tend to favor um, the less prevalent view that in that moment, what is actually occurring is Jesus isn't just seeing Lazarus. What is actually occurring is Jesus is seeing the drama of human history unfold. 
And there is this deep angst, so the same angst I think that uh, we are having revealed to us by John in the book of Revelation when you hear uh, the people, those that have been slain, that are the souls of those who have been martyred crying out at the altar. <laughs> by the way, it's the same, it's a very similar construct that John uses uh, from there to, to John 11. And I think the connection is clear. The connection then is the angst and the deep, deep sense of frustration that you're com that you're mentioning is not something that is foreign to God. And that's, I think, why it, it, it's such an apropos way to look at uh, grief and sorrow as, as opportunities for worship. Wow. Yeah. So the, the, the point that we can learn from that is that we don't need to rush through grief. We and don't. in fact, the fact that we grieve actually means that mm. we're worshiping God. Because grief is is connected to grace, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, if if you don't understand grief and pain, then you have a very low threshold for grace. Yeah. And I think that's why um, our our ideas of judgment typically are created um, or are espoused by people that have a very short uh, experience with grief or very low tolerance for grief. I find that as uh, as one navigates sorrow, uh, one's capacity for, for empathy improves and increases dramatically. And that increase in, in, in empathy is directly, is directly related to our increased understanding of what grace is. And so without grief, you don't have, you don't have as large a bandwidth for, for grace as, as you would otherwise. That's the point, by the way, that John Hick, famous uh, 20th century theologian, is trying to make mm. through, through his work. Uh, but more than that, I think if you don't have grief, uh, then you don't understand why there needs to be, if not leniency uh, during judgment, then, then definitely looking at grace as part um, as part of of judgment, um, grief has this uh, um, this immense capacity. Um, in just the last last uh, last Sabbath, we read a story of um, a man who had been convicted of uh, drunk driving, uh, killed someone, uh, was sentenced to thirty four years behind bars um, for vehicular manslaughter. That indeed was the just and fair sentence. Um, through grief, the the child of the mother of the child that this man killed uh, reached out to them, and they started a correspondence. Mm -hmm. And she began to advocate for him to be released before those thirty-four years. Um, he actually only served seventeen years, and the last of those two two years, he worked in tandem with uh, with this this mother. Um, promoting uh, abstinence from alcohol and uh, better uh, decision-making when it comes to drinking and driving. Wow. And you know, he, after he got released, they continued uh, this relationship. And so grace, uh, grace was exhibited in a way I, I think that nobody else could because it was preceded by grief. Mm. And I think this grief is not God's plan. It should make us angry, as as you said. But because it's an act of worship, mm -hmm. if it truly is an act of worship, then it it also can can be transformational in the same way that uh, that worship is transformational, and it's transformational because it does amplify our bandwidth for grace. Wow, that's well, that is so powerful. The fact that grief, because it's an act of worship, when it's combined with grace can be transformational. Mm -hmm. It's meant to be transformational. And we've seen that, how it mm -hmm. softens hearts in a way that nothing else can, yeah. right? Yeah. It can also harden hearts it as can. well, it right? Can. And which is that element of grace, why mm -hmm. grace is necessary. Yeah. And I mean, you've, you've seen it, I'm sure, in, uh, throughout your ministry as you've, as you've been called into that holy space. Um, very rarely, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen, but more often than not, in the presence of grief, families 
bind together mm. in a way in which often they they otherwise wouldn't. And mm. so all these problems and these petty, petty things that mm. we argue about begin to dissipate in the presence of grief. That's not to say, again, that's not to say that grief is intended by God or that God is giving us grief in order to to better us on this uh, Hick and I disagree vehemently. But um, grief, when approached as an act of worship, does have, as you're saying, the capacity to transform us in, in ways that seldom other experiences can. Yeah, and we've we've noted how God takes things that he did not want mm. and did not he had did not intend for mm. to happen but because of our choices because of sin in this world they happen and he's turned them into good mm. but that does not necessarily mean he advocates for that or would have wanted that because there were there was another way that mm. would have been better that's absolutely true and i think that's why the song concludes uh in verse 12 worthy worthy is the lamb who was slain I don't think it was God's purpose, that uh, God's plan or God's will that this, this beautiful uh, human and divine incarnate word uh, who, who made it his, uh, his purpose to love and love well and to show us the extent of, of, of the power of love. I don't think it was God's will that that, uh, that, that beautiful, beautiful being was placed on, on a cross to die. Mm -hmm. But... It is at the, it is on that cross that you see you see grief being utilized as the ultimate act of worship when Jesus says your will be done um, when Jesus says into your hands I commit my spirit mm -hmm. what what those are those are those are statements of doxology they're worship statements and it is that it is that capacity for grief and grace that allows uh, that allows us to sing a song where we say worthy is the lamb to receive power and uh, wealth and wisdom and strength and honor, and honor and glory and praise forever and ever it's the suffering and grief that allows us yeah. or that that allows us to understand grace in any way um, and so i i think then the question is um, if we are really keen in constructing ideas of judgment that are punitive, maybe maybe we need to still learn some more lessons in the school of affliction. Wow. Wow. Yeah, because you see this formula of grief being transformational for good, for softening hearts when it's combined with grace. But the grace comes through the sacrificial, mm -hmm. the sacrificial lamb, the lamb who was slain. So God sacrificing on the cross, which I, I like your point about that, that that wasn't God's. It, we can say that that was God's backup plan, but that wasn't God's. That wouldn't have been God's choice mm -hmm. if man hadn't choose, chosen to sin, because mm -hmm. if that had been what God wanted from the very beginning, then you'd have to say God is a little bit masochistic, mm -hmm. right? right? Which he's not, right? Right? Which he's not. So, so that's not what God wanted. Um, but because of sin, he chose this path as a way of showing grace. Mm -hmm. And that grace, when combined with grief, like on the cross, can be so powerfully yeah. transformational. Yeah, and we're going to say, we haven't, we haven't said anything that's going to get us into trouble so far, so I'm going to try. <laughs> I think the purpose of incarnation could have been could have been accomplished without a cross. Mm -hmm. Jesus could have lived a long, peaceful life and died on his sleep. The reality is he didn't because human beings chose mm. um, to do what we tip with what we do so well, which is be intolerant and subject other people to pain and violence. Mm. That's not God's will. That's our fault. And so I think, Often the problem is when we get to ideas of judgment that are too punitive, yeah. we end up with with these versions that say, well, um, you spoke against the temple, we're going to hang you on a cross. Or God needed uh, to be, the wrath of God, as the song says, needed to be satisfied, so mm -hmm. Jesus hung on a cross. I mean, when you think about the words to that song, which I love, is my favorite song, and Linda knows that that's the song that's playing when uh, for my funeral, save for that line. No, the Jesus didn't need to climb on a cross to satisfy God's wrath. That was us. We put him up there in God's capacity, his bandwidth 
for grace uh, took upon himself that suffering because it is it was that's the only way where we, when we can look at how dehumanizing we can be and say um, there's something wrong with us and we need help and um, help comes in the in the form of a of a beautiful beautiful a lamb who's slain yeah which is why I love that scripture doesn't just have one metaphor mm-hmm. for the sacrifice and atonement of God, right? That there are multiple metaphors because there's something missing with all of those mm-hmm. metaphors. And like you said, with that whole like the substitutionary atonement, this idea of of God having to be um, satisfied with his anger, it it there is something missing there no. when we, we describe... Yeah. Um, the sacrifice of Jesus purely in those terms. That atonement theory is great at explaining how terrible uh, God, uh, how terrible sin is, Mm -hmm. right? How costly sin is. It does a great job of alerting us to the reality of sin and the devastating effects sin has. It does a terrible job at painting God's character. And so you, you, uh, you are absolutely right. You need... You need a more comprehensive view of who God is in suffering. Uh, to conclude, suffering, uh, if you allow it to be an act of worship, can give a new perspective to how you view judgment. Wow, that's beautiful. Joey, pray for us as, as, we, as we finish today. Our good and gracious God, I think with the cross and your sacrifice there, more than anything, shows how much and to what lengths you are willing to go in order to offer grace to, a, to humans who were willing to put you there. Mm. And that's incredibly moving. So even in our grief, and there's been a lot of grief in our community, even in our grief, we take moments to rejoice, knowing that this is not the end, that there is more possible because you were willing to go to that length to give us a chance to be with you and to live out, to reign as kings alongside you. This we appreciate and we thank you for is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the week and may the God of grace be present in your life today and evermore. Mm -hmm.